0: Hello and welcome to Massey Ferguson Hay Talk, a show all about my favorite subject, hay and forage. Hi, I'm Matt LaCroix, North American Marketing Manager for Massey Ferguson and Heston by Massey Ferguson Hay Equipment. I grew up on a cow, calf, and hay farm in Northeast Georgia, and getting the best hay I can is a personal goal as well as a professional one. I've been working for Agco for 18 years and focused on hay for most of that time. So, what is good hay? What makes some forage better than others? What are the ways our hay and forage lose value? And how do we prevent that? And what are the ways we can get a product we're proud of? Join us after the break when we talk to Dr. Lisa Baxter and learn more. Hay Talk is brought to you by Massey Ferguson and Heston by Massey Ferguson, your best choice for durable hay equipment designed to give you great performance year after year. Visit us at masseyferguson.us to learn more. Hello again, this is Matt LaCroix with Massey Ferguson Hay Talk. And today we have a very good guest with us, Dr. Lisa Baxter. She is the forage specialist with the University of Georgia. And today we're going to cover raking and tedding practices. So Lisa, can you uh, give us a little background about yourself and how you got interested in the the hay and forage side of the business?
1: Certainly. Thank you, Matt. Um, So I've I grew up around livestock and raised sheep and chickens and everything through 4-H projects and really wasn't exposed to the forage world until I went to college and ultimately grad school um, doing my master's with Dennis Hancock um, is at University of Georgia in Athens at the time. And, you know, I always thought I wanted to be a, a vet for years and years. And when I started learning more about the forage world, this is where I wanted to be. Uh, still, you know, almost 10 years later from starting grad school, it's, it's fun. Uh, get up every day, it's always something different. Um, and then being able to come back to Georgia and serve as a forest specialist now, yeah. I mean, it's amazing to, just the diversity that we have in this state. Uh, I really started focusing a lot more on hay when I delved into what resources that we had within our state extension program and what gap was really missing for our forage producers. And there's there's a lot of progress that we've made in the hay world, and we've got a long way to go.
0: I agree completely. Uh, and I really appreciate you and Dr. Hancock and being so close to where our headquarters are uh, here in Georgia. And I like a lot of the stuff that you know University of Georgia is doing towards getting alfalfa strains that can grow in our Southeastern climate, which is not always uh, super friendly to that particular crop. But uh, one thing I do want to start off, since this is raking and tedding practices, is uh, what are your thoughts on tedding? Uh, Using a tedder on alfalfa, we call them in the Southeast, a fluffer. But how do you feel about that on alfalfa?
1: All right, so the, the Southeast is so different climatically from everywhere we traditionally think that alfalfa is grown in the United States. And in, in many areas, a, a tether wouldn't necessarily be required, but for us in the southeast, it, it's a, it can be a necessary tool throughout some of those summer hay cuttings. Uh, the the problem with the tether, for for all the benefits that it does have, is you know we can stand to lose a lot of quality, and so we we've got to be careful in how we use that tool to make sure that we're really capturing all of the good and help kind of mitigating some of the bad.
0: Yeah. So if we did have to use a tether, I know uh, there's the good and the bad in it, but if we did have to use a tether and this, we know a rainstorm was coming and we had to get the crop up, what would be the best time to use a tetter if we definitely had to do it?
1: Right. So the earlier that we can use the tether in that drying process, the better. And that's going to look differently for each producer and in each harvest, we, we can get pretty creative with our use of the hay tools and dodging rainstorms in in the Southeast. Uh, So a lot of it depends on kind of what our conditioning practices are with the mower. Um, But in in general, we wanna run a tether when there's still at least 50% moisture in that forage, whether it's alfalfa, grass, hay, or any any crop. We wanna target that 50% mark, our cutoff point, Um, or at least at minimum, make sure there's still a dew out there but we don't want to go much below that 50% mark in terms of alfalfa. Just the way the plant is structured, we've got that big stem, but then there's there's delicate little stems coming off to the leaves. And it's really easy to shatter those when we start getting too dry in that wilting process.
0: Yeah. Has anybody that you're aware of done any kind of studies uh, to see? Uh, what kind of potential losses we have, we use a tether on out grass haze or alfalfa. I'm assuming your forage quality is going to be affected if you use it at the wrong time, especially if it's uh, too dry.
1: Correct. I don't know that there's any research that, that necessarily regresses one on the other, but you know, as a general observation from hay practices in the southeast and throughout the country, the, the drier that forage is whenever we're running that tether, the more likely it is that we're going to have leaf shatter. And that's where all our nutrients are. There's, there are very few nutrients in alf- the alfalfa stem. Uh, that's where all our fiber and lignin is. The, the, the stuff that is making alfalfa so good and nutritious is really in those leaves. And so as good as that tether can be for helping with the dry down, we don't want to use it incorrectly to knock off those leaves.
0: Yeah. So if a producer was going to use a, a tedder in the process, whether it be a grass or alfalfa, um, what would be a item that a a producer would determine to make this a good process for them? How do they know that they need to go tedding? If just say they're new to the industry.
1: Right. So for most of us in, in the, in Georgia, and and I, I would say except for maybe some in the Midwest, alfalfa is not going to be our only crop. And so, there's always that point where we need help with the dry down, especially in the more humid areas, and that's where the tedder fits. Um, I know a lot of producers here in the southeast that that are using the tedder instead of a mower conditioner to help get um, that that rapid dry down. And we we like to use, we like to recommend that to be using it in addition to. Um, and in the grand scheme of of purchasing hay equipment, a is fairly inexpensive compared to the big pieces like the mower and baler and it it can make a difference um, especially if we're fighting our summer rainstorms that come every two to three days we can't wait that extra day for that that grass or alfalfa to dry and it can can help make or break uh, a good hay crop
0: yep yep you're right so what would a person be looking for when they're tedding their their hay, whether, you know, let's let's just go with grass hay. What would they be looking for? What would be the finished product that they would look back on and say, hey, that that really made a difference?
1: So the way that we usually see it here, especially in our heavier Bermuda grass crops are, you know, one, if the, the grass did get rained on or we have a really heavy dew, it goes, and that's where the name fluffer kind of comes in. It goes and it fluffs it up and helps spread it out to give us that more even drying um, if If someone's looking more for kind of an, an an even product, if they're selling it more aesthetically to our horse markets, that's going to be critical for them. Um, we We tend to have a not the most even hay fields in the southeast. If we're not careful, there 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 will be clumps in there and, and the tedder is going to help spread that out and give us that more even distribution of drying. The, the way that I like it is it gives me so much flexibility in terms of following the mower. Um, If if I want to cut immediately before rain, then I have the option of of setting a mower to a a smaller um, swath path and then going back after that rain when the ground dries out that morning and and spreading that slightly dry hay out um, to, to help reduce that drying time then. So it just it adds so much flexibility for such a simple tool.
0: I do like that that term flexibility. I think um, the ability to be flexible and, and haymaking process is not always the easiest thing, but anytime you can gain any flexibility, it's a it's always a plus. But uh, you know, speaking on the flexibility side, do you think raking uh, is always a necessary process in the haymaking uh, world?
1: So, for many of us in, in Bermuda grass country, it would be. Um, there are cases where, you know, probably more from a, a silage type operation where you could cut and or cut so that it throws a fairly narrow swath and then bale, bale that up. That's not something we would typically do, especially in the southeast for especially hay production, maybe for bailage if we could get the conditions just right. Um, but even though we don't usually ted when it comes to baleage, we still want to go out with the rake just to merge those windrows or those swath rows to give more even feeding into the baler.
0: Yep, uh, I agree. Uh, So, you know, wheel rakes are very popular all over North America. And here here at Massey Ferguson, we sell wheel rakes and rotary rakes and tedders like we've been talking about earlier, but uh, we've seen that the industry um, for rotary rakes has really um, gone up in recent years and uh, what are your thoughts on rotary rakes uh, becoming more and more popular?
1: So I'm a big fan of rotary rakes. Um, something that I've noticed in even just the past year, when, when I'm talking to a group of producers, if they introduce themselves as a hay producer, so not a livestock producer that also cuts hay, if they, if they are a true hay producer, they've already made the switch to a rotary rake because they have seen that benefit and what it can do in terms of creating that good windrow, um, the good uniform, um, just in the shape of that windrow. Uh, it helps them get in the field faster. It helps it dry better in that windrow. It's helping protect that forage quality better because we can rake, start raking at a slightly higher moisture. You know, all these things, that they're, they're really kind of summative there. And our hay producers are recognizing that. So if, if someone's looking for... What rake do I need to to produce the best quality hay that I possibly can? They really need to give a serious look at a rotary rake
0: yep yep very very good point uh I find that the the only real uh, you know reason somebody would even not consider a rotary rake sometimes they're a little bit uh a little bit more costly than a than a wheel rake. Uh, can you compare a, a wheel rake and a rotary rake uh, pros and cons for both?
1: So the the big benefits that I see to a wheel rake, um, one is that they are cheaper, um, and you know we we tend to think about spending money on the mower and the the baler, and not much thought about the the pieces in between. Um, but you know as we've talked through this, that's where a lot of forage quality is lost is in those pieces in between. Uh, so the, the wheel rake is cheaper, but you, you're going to get what you pay for there. Um, since it is ground driven, uh, instead of PTO driven, we, we do have the introduction of, of ash content, which can be just notorious down here in the, the coastal plains area with our sand. Um, it, it, that's, that's even more critical if we're talking about a dairy ration uh, because the cows essentially fill up on that sand rather than uh, the actual nutrients from the forage. It can, can really throw off a dairy ration if we're not careful. Uh, A kind of benefit of that wheel rake is we can make some really sharp turns with it. So if we start getting up into the more mountainous regions that they do fit better in some of those tight corners. Um, Up throughout the northern parts of Georgia and you get up through the the kind of Appalachian region, our fields are are mostly pastures that we may occasionally cut hay in or the hay fields are going to be much smaller than what we see throughout the the Midwest and Great Plains and the, the deep south and so that's where a wheel rake can fit, um, just in terms of the logistics of, of hauling and navigating a field. Um, but then when we talk about a, a, a true hay field and a, and a hay, and hay production system, the, the rotary rig, rake, it really pulls ahead. I mean, the, the biggest con of it is the price compared to the wheel rake. But when you start putting, if we could calculate out the pounds of nutrients that you're ultimately saving and not having to supplement later, I'm sure it would pay for itself and not much time at all, depending on the size of your operation. Um, there, There is some problems in terms of the logistics and, you know, just fe- working from, you know, a, a wheel rate that you can pretty much drive anywhere you want. The rotary rate takes a bit more skill to drive uh, and, and finding, do you want a side delivery center delivery? And, and it, it can take some getting used to, but, you know, running both side by side here in some research trials that, that rotary
0: rake really stands out. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Uh, when you're looking for quality hay, um, I think um, a rotary rake is going to be the best best route. And you've actually given me a very good idea. I'm going to put together a, a ROI calculator on our end. I don't know if there's already one been done by another university or, or by you, but to look at you know, total tons uh, produced uh, in one cutting or uh, throughout the year to see if we can outweigh that uh that cost difference. And one thing I do run into in a lot of my training events that we do is um people running rotary rakes properly. So um they'll they'll worry that they can't go their normal speed, say they're normally run seven or eight, nine miles an hour, whatever it is through the field, that they can't do that with the rotary rake, which they can. And another thing is when you get into the alfalfa areas um, people worry about it knocking leaves off. And if you run it at the full 540 RPMs, it's, there's a potential for that. So one thing I always tell people is go your RPMs pretty much as low as you can and still be able to clean that, uh, clean that field properly and get down even to 380 RPMs on that uh, PTO to be able to make that happen. So we never let anybody in any of our training events go much higher than 450 uh, PTO on those rotary rakes.
1: Yeah, two so. things that, that I've seen in kind of in making that transition is the notion of you don't have to run the rake immediately in front of the baler. You you can go ahead and make that windrow when it's you know just over 30% moisture and you, you be, being able to start earlier, you, you you end up having a head start on that end process. So yes, you could drive, you know, a couple miles faster if you really wanted to with that wheel rake but having that earlier start time kind of shifts that advantage back to the rotary rake. And then with the, the tether or the rake, um, John Bernard gave me a quote a couple months ago for a dairy forage field day. And I'm, I'm going to be using this quote for the rest of my career. And it's that a, a tether and a rake are not tillage pieces of equipment. And so if we're seeing, you know, especially something like a rotary rake that's PTO driven um, digging down into the ground there, there's something that we've got to we've got to change something's wrong and it, it goes back into our cutting height as well and raising that forage up but so many rakes are, and, and headers are not properly adjusted and it's a shame that you can have such a, a piece of equipment that's really supposed to help you get from you know standing forage to a, a, a good round bell of hay that can make or break your process just by not turning a knob too many or enough times or something like that.
0: Yeah, uh, I, w- I will admit I did have to mute myself there because uh, I did have a, a nice giggle at the <laughs> not being a tillage piece of equipment because uh, one thing I do, you can tell even from across the field, may uh running a rotary rake uh, or a tetter improperly when they see the dust storm behind them. Uh, one thing we talked about in another one of our Massey Ferguson Hague talk, uh, podcast was if you see dust in the air it's contaminating your hay in some form or fashion so just like if we are and i think we're a little more cautious of,
1: of that kind of in a sandier soul although it, it can be problematic in any of them um that sand especially when we start talking about a high quality ration like a dairy ration can really bring down the quality of a good forage just by introducing that ash content and and it it seems silly that something like sand could make or break your process here, uh, but it could really make a difference. And it and it's such an easy setting. You've already bought the equipment; it's just setting it correctly.
0: Yeah, uh, short process uh, before you leave the barn, or before you leave your farmyard with the with the product, just to set that that height. And I usually like to use the toe of my boot as a a good gauge. Um, you just try to keep it about two inches up off the ground. So if you do come across any berms or terraces or dirt hills or something, you're not, you know, scraping those too bad. Of course, you're not going to miss all of them, but uh, if we can miss, you know, 75 to 85% of them, I think you're, you're ahead of the game at that point.
1: Yeah. And we're, we're not necessarily blessed with the the most even of hay fields in our state um, or even the Southeast for that matter. And so we tend to set ours um, in the field for many of our hay operations with the university and, and surrounding research collaborators. Um, it's not uncommon that when if I'm out doing a video shoot or something to, to stop the tractor driver, crank the handle a couple of times and then send them on again because where we set it at the barns, not necessarily where we end up. It, it, it's floating a little differently in the field than we expect. Um, so that way we do capture as much of that hay as possible in our windrow, but without introducing that ash content.
0: Exactly. So what is the best time to rake your hay and what are uh, some negative implications to raking at the wrong time?
1: So it it really would depend on producer and and you'll get a feel for kind of your your operation and and how fast your forage is drying down. Um, We don't want to start raking too early uh, whether we're talking about hay or baleage, um, because we do want it to to reach near that optimum dry down point. Once we get it in that windrow, even if we're talking about a windrow with a rotary rake, the, it, the dry down is not going to be the same as if we had it covered across the, all, the entire surface of the hay field, just from a, a surface area standpoint. Um, with the rotary rake, we tend to start around 30%. We'll rake we get down below 25 or so just because of the difference in the windrow. Um, many people will rake too dry rather than too wet. Most people aren't really jumping the gun on raking um, because they want the baler to follow almost immediately behind. And the problem with raking too dry is that just like tedding too dry, we we introduce a lot of risk of leaf shatter. Um, It's not going to be as much as with a tedder, but it's still those metal tines are hitting that forage you know, at a relatively high speed, when it, the drier that it gets, the more likely it is to start shattering. And, and just like with heading in that alfalfa, even if we're talking about a grass, the, those tender parts of the leaf blade that starting to dry down, that's where all our nutrients are. And the, the more leaf that we can get into that final bale, the higher quality product we're going to get.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, <clears throat> a very good point. I know, um, That's a good point for the grass hay producers as well to pay attention to because you can still shatter those leaves whether it be an orchard grass or a timothy or Bermuda, and that's where most of your nutrients are. So that can actually turn into a powder form if you don't do it at the right time. Another thing um, I have noticed in my working with a a rotary rake, for instance, is not only can you start earlier, like you mentioned earlier, the crop continues to dry down because it is a fluffier windrow, but I've noticed that balers, whether it be a, a small square, a round baler, or a large square, you can actually travel a little bit faster through the field um, baling because of how the formed uh, the windrow is formed versus a wheel rake. Have you run into any of that in your research?
1: I'm sure it's coming. Um, last year was a little dry during our PK season, had it been a little wetter when I was running rake side by side, we definitely would have have had more yield to see this difference more prominently. Um, something that I've, I've noticed is where the, the wheel rake tends to wrap the forage and, and it kind of curls in on itself. You're hitting those low and high spots, whereas that rotary rake is more uniform. And so as it's feeding into the baler, you don't, or at least there's a lower tendency of those random lumps you're having to. You're not having to adjust your your baler on the windrow as much to get that good even feed in, and it's. I don't know if it has necessarily affected my speed. It is, I guess, easier on me as an operator on that rotary rake um, because I'm not having to make those last minute adjustments as the baler is moving across that windrow. So it's just an added peace of mind.
0: Very good, Dr. Lisa Baxter with the University of Georgia. Forage Specialist, you have been an excellent guest today. I really appreciate all the information you've given us. Uh, to think about whether it be an alfalfa or a grass hay producer, are there any final thoughts you want to leave us with before we uh, end today's podcast?
1: Uh, I think kind of the big takeaway from this is is don't forget those middle steps. Um, we, we tend to focus so much on the, the mower and the baler process, but if you, you look at a lot of data, so many of, so much of our forage loss happens in this in-between. So during that tedding and raking process, and there's there's, there's a lot that we can do just from adjusting the equipment that you, you do have um, to, to make these tools work better.
0: Couldn't say it better myself. I really appreciate your time today. And everyone in the audience, I look forward to another Massey Ferguson Hay Talk. Thank you and have a great day. We just had a very good conversation with Dr. Lisa Baxter of University of Georgia, forage specialist, and she mentioned a lot of great things within our conversation covering tedders, wheel rakes, rotary rakes. Regardless of your needs, Massey Ferguson has you covered. We have tedders ranging from 8 feet all the way up to 42 feet, low maintenance, high specs, so one of the good things about our tethers and rotary rakes for that matter is they're gonna have the largest tines on the market, less chance of any kind of damage to those. Uh, we'd also have tine savers, which is a really nice feature. So if one does break, it doesn't, uh, uh, the other one doesn't fall off. It's easy to replace. Very easy maintenance. All your grease zerks line up on your drive shaft. So it's always a good thing, ease maintenance to, help you get out there and maintain something you might not have uh, planned on having to maintain uh, on a daily basis on the rotary rake side we have seven models ranging from 12 feet to over 32 feet very low maintenance <clears throat> low horsepower requirements is always a, a huge plus plus. and then if you're looking for a wheel rake we've got you covered there as well we have seven models ranging from 15 feet to 28 feet so hop over to your local massey ferguson dealer or visit masseyferguson.us